0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 184 of Talking with TK, I'm your host Tristan Connell, really looking forward to bringing you today's episode and it's with former Canberra Raider, Parramatta Eel and Northern Eagles player in David Wesley, Dave's an absolute champion bloke, he's an absolute pioneer as well, one of the first, he was actually born in Papua New Guinea, he came to Australia at 8 or 9 years old and made it through to all the rep teams over Queensland but it was once he picked, got picked up by the Canberra Raiders. Really, his career really took off. He's part of that 1994 Canberra winning premiership team, so one of the greatest teams of all time. A really great player. You know, he's tough as nails, and, you know, he's still doing some great things in the community now. So really, really excited to bring you, bring you his story. Before we get down on the show, just a big shout-out to everyone that's sharing the show. You know, the the downloads are through the roof, and I couldn't have done it without you. So thank you for sharing it with your family and friends. If you can continue that, I really, really would be grateful. If you want to connect with me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, I'm at Talking With TK. You'll find me on Instagram at Tristan Nell. That's K-N-E-L-L. Send me an old school email, Tristan at Talking If you want to have a yarn about the footy or any guest requests or anything else you want to do, if you want to get in touch, either email or direct message me on the socials. I am part of the Diamantina Podcast Network. So definitely check out, I highly recommend the Patuta Advocate, Half Cast Podcast, Dylan Friends. So something of everything that obviously, if you're into some laughs, definitely check them out. Half Car Podcast, a couple of great UFC fighters hosting some great stories from from all, you know, it's not just fighters that come on their po- podcast. And then Dylan Friends, a lot of AFL people on that one, but also a good mix on on there. So it's kind of the AFL version of Talking With TK. So definitely check out Dill Show, Dylan, on there right now. Uh, my book, Talking With Champions, that's out now, so 75 of my favorite interviews, including some, some interviews you haven't heard on Talking With TK with the likes of Jonathan Thurston, some big American people from likes of Evander Holyfield, Larry Holmes, George Foreman, Alela Ali, Mario Andretti, so check out the book. It's called Talking With Champions, perfect for a gift, and it's retailing at Dimmick's Booktopia or Angus Robinson, so just search, or you can Google t- Talking With Champions, or just hit me up On the direct message or email, and I'll point you in the right direction. All right, guys. Well, today's episode is actually in two parts. So we recorded probably a couple of weeks in between each other. The first one goes for about an hour and 15 minutes. So it's Dave telling his backstory and kind of a few tales from his career. The second part is actually more of a mental health and a couple of things that Dave just wants to review on the the thing from a couple of things that he suffered as a a young boy. But, you know, he's, he trusted me to, you know, talk about it. And it's, it's a great two part. two-part podcast, so I highly recommend that you definitely check out the second part as well. Like I said, second part starts after about an hour and 15. All right, guys, excited for today's episode, and I introduce David Wesley. All right, guys, my special guest today is is David Wesley. David is a former professional rugby league player who played 143 first grade games for the Canberra Raiders, Parramatta Eels and Northern Eagles. He also won a premiership with the Raiders in 1994. David was born in the PNG and represented his country of birth in five tests. Post footy, he's the head of rugby league, sports and social impact at the Grass Skirts Project and he's also well credentialed in the coaching field, having coached the PNG national women's team. Welcome to the podcast. David Wesley. David, welcome, buddy.
1: Thank you for having me, Tristan. um, Thank you.
0: Pleasure, mate. Now, mate, I love a backstory and, mate, you've got quite the good one. And I love hearing about people that are born overseas. So, if we can kick things off, tell me a little bit about where you were born in in Papua New Guinea and also a little bit about your family.
1: Um, I was born in Bai, Bai Village, uh, Rabao. So, Nonga Hospital, that was just uh, a little hospital down The road from my village, so uh, I was born there in 1974. So, um, a uh, lot of good, a lot of good memories, I suppose, um, growing up there and then moving to Australia when I was eight. Um, just, just loved the place, so it, it was a beautiful place uh, before the eruption in '94. Yep. And, um, uh, a lot of my family are back there, all my mum's um, siblings and cousins, and um. Yeah, like I said, a lot of fun, fun memories. Yeah, what was the
0: village called, David?
1: Uh by B A double I.
0: Okay. Yeah. And how many people were
1: in, yeah. in the village? Um, I couldn't say. I left when I was pretty young. Um Okay. Uh we we got displaced, displaced during the, the ninety four eruption, so all of Rabo got flattened. Um so now that uh moving on, all my family's around the other side in Kokopo. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been um where we've been living so far okay. been back a few times, but um, a few people are starting to go back to a bell and and, and um, but the volcano is still active so theres that worry of um, yeah you know could it, could have erupt again
0: okay yeah just I did mention that I listened to a podcast with Justin Olam last year and you know obviously his memories are probably a little bit stronger because he didn't leave Papua New Guinea until he was in his kind of late teens really but from what you remember, you know, you said you you left at eight years old, but just from the village, do you remember much at all from the way you kind of grew up?
1: Um, I, I have uh, bits and pieces, mm. um, mainly the, the memories that I I really enjoyed, and one of them was um, always going to the beach and having a swim. Okay. So that was one of my favorite pastimes. Um, so we lived on the bottom of a mountain and. Um, to go to my other family 's homes, you have to walk up a mountain, so yep. we were probably about fifty meters from the beach our our house, um, so it was just running down whatever I could and having a swim beautiful water um, and being around my family yep. um, it wasn't there was no running water the toilet was pretty much um, uh, a hole in the ground. Um, Yeah, cooking in the open fire. Wow. Yeah. What about like baths and
0: showers and things like that? Was that just in the rivers?
1: Um, If you wanted to have a dip and have a bit of a a cool down, you'd jump in the water. But um, there was uh, to have a shower. um, They had water come out from the ground, so you had to refill your bucket or whatever you wash yourself with. So usually you got a bucket of water. And you have a little container where you just wash yourself soap yourself and then rinse yourself off again so wow there was no baths and no
0: how <laughs> no unusual cigar, when so. you when you came to Australia and you took your first kind of hot shower had kind of meals coming from supermarkets and things like that were you totally freaked out by that
1: uh, yeah we we were in Port Moresby for about six months okay um, while waiting for a visa my father um, found out he was um, dying of cancer okay. so He um, got us over here and he had to get um, um, here for the hospital as well to make sure that he tried tried to recover. But uh, we all came over and um, lived here from 94 on. Did I read right um, that
0: you didn't even know your dad played rugby league until a couple of years ago?
1: Yeah, I met up with a an old guy that um, played for Connie Tigers up in Port Moresby and I knew his background was rugby union okay. he played in Sydney. Um, so when I met him, he showed us a photo of him playing rugby league and uh, that was a bit of a surprise and you know, a proud moment for myself.
0: Yeah. But I heard he was a, a back, mate.
1: Yeah. He played, I think he played breakaway lock for rugby union, okay. but um, yeah, he, he played out in the back. So but, um didn't know much about him. I just, you know, heard stories from his mates and mum, you know, shared a bit as well, but he yeah, was a very quiet man.
0: Yeah, okay. Was he a very similar build to yourself?
1: Yeah, um, uh he was about six six two, six three. Okay. Um, tall man and uh school teacher. So that's that's the reason why I went up to PNG to teach. Um teach a younger age and then end up being a teacher's lecturer towards the end of his career. Wow, mate, kind of
0: like with Papua New Guineans, is there any traditional foods that you guys eat? Because why I ask, obviously, you you always, all the boys always have great physiques. Like I remember I interviewed Ruben Wiki last year and he told me how you and Bruce Mamando picked him up from the airport. And obviously, (laughs) mate, Ruben's ripped as hell himself, but he just remembers these two two Papua New Guinean boys who were just out of their mind ripped picking him up and he was so intimidated by you two young fellas that obviously were around <laughs> the same age. But realistically, what do you guys eat? Like how's your like kind of – like is there any special foods that, that PNG people eat at all?
1: Uh, if you're living in a village, you're pretty much eating um, your garden food. So uh, where I'm from, it's a lot of greens and um, sweet potato, taro um, and – we call it movement, where you cook in the cook in the ground. Okay, so it's so like a honey sort of. Sort of thing. and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so growing up, that was kind of our base diet, and it had a kind of a building blocks to, um, you know, growing and having strong, strong body. But I think it's genetics as well. We we have a lot of Papua New Guineans that never touch uh, weight or been in the gym ever, and they're just solid. They, they look like bodybuilders. Yeah. So. yeah. I think just it's genetics, in the, in the yeah. genes as
0: well. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: but um, I just think of it back when I was started doing weights um, and and starting to exercise, I build muscle pretty quick. Okay. And even now, when I don't exercise for a while and I get back into it, it's just a quick process, you know, just from working hard. And I, I'm I'm thinking it's in genetics, yeah,
0: for sure. Did you attend school before you left for Australia?
1: Yeah, I, I went. I did a few years there in class, but um, didn't do too well but love sports and love being outdoors so i did some primary schooling there and then when i came to australia um dad put us into school just from up the road from where we live
0: okay justin was also telling last year that you know his trek to school like we're talking about kilometers and kilometers like literally walking two or three hours to to school was that kind of similar to what you had to do as well
1: uh, with schooling, um, I, like I said, I only probably did a, a, a year or two. Okay. Um, so I was pretty much living in the village before that, and then uh, Dad had to shift us into town, Rebel town, yep. um, where we had a place there, and that's when I started schooling. And, okay. Um, my sister and uh, went to school in Australia, and yeah.
0: How dangerous was it in '94?
1: 94 in Raval Ravelle was a really peaceful place. Okay. Um, just, just a really peaceful place and um, I can't remember any sort of issues or anything like that, you know, at all. Uh, even Port Moresby when we stayed there for you know, six months um, back then it was, it was really peaceful but um, it's changed a lot since then.
0: Yeah, okay. Did you, was it really kind of for your family because like realistically once you leave, especially for the first time, you might not be going back for years. Was it quite an emotional sort of exit?
1: Um, I was really excited about moving. Um, I was someone that couldn't sit still at home and I was just roaming around and going visiting family and friends and it was a kind of a, you know, being an explorer and and going on this journey and going to a new world and, yeah, I met friends straight away uh, when I went to school and took took to sports. and. Um, the families I met were, you know, brought me in straight away, so I didn't really miss my beginnings.
0: Yeah, where whereabouts did you first uh, locate to, relocate to? Sorry, Uh
1: in North uh, North Parramatta, in so uh, Okay. Our school was probably a fifty metre walk from where we stayed. So, uh, our father did a bit of a research and got the right place and had the school ready for us, and um it was a nice small community back then and um safe and we had a lot of png people that came down as well around that same time and we had some family here so yeah that transition was pretty good and uh, they kind of looked after us
0: how much different was cairns back then
1: oh it was absolutely different you know the tourism industry wasn't (laughs) wasn't as big back then and um the esplanade i don't know if you can remember it but there was just mud flaps and and no one was there so so the
0: big pool definitely was missing then
1: yeah it was missing <laughs>
0: <laughs> how long did it till you you got taken out for like obviously the barrier reefs obviously a big attraction up there how long till you you kind of went out to see that
1: uh, not till we did a trip to school okay. so I remember as a, a student uh, we went across as part of a school trip yep. um, I wore glasses back then nice thick glasses did you yeah yeah yeah, or short,
0: short, hoss-eyed,
1: one-sided. One so I've had lazy since then, but I had really thick glasses and um I actually lost them in the water, and we had to get someone to dive in there, and I could see it, you know.
0: Are you a poor fella, be, like yeah. a, a little immigrant boy with big glasses. You that was never going to be the, oh, the best start.
1: Uh, there's a few stories. Uh, um, playing rugby league, I couldn't couldn't um, stand at a long distance and catch the ball, so i had to go right next to the ruck and call for the ball and then run. So <laughs> there wasn't any much uh, passing and catching going on. I just catch that ball from close and just run it hard.
0: So that's probably what put you in the fours, right? Otherwise, you might have been like a centre or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I enjoyed playing the fours, so it worked out well. <laughs> yeah.
0: How old were you when you first started playing rugby league?
1: Um, officially, my first season when I was 12. Um, yeah. I... Had a group of mates that we just hung around and I think I'll tell the story. My first taste of um, something similar rugby league was Red Red Rover. So mm. uh, we had that band at our primary school. Okay. Uh, just the the game, you know, how rough we were. So, um, But 12 years old, I had a full season and from then on, I just really enjoyed it. You know, I, I took to my coaches and um, they were like father figures to me. And yep. So played played all the other different sports. So AFL. Um, I had a couple of mates that really loved AFL, and tried rugby in and out as well. So.
0: Yeah. Now you, you mentioned before that your dad had cancer when you guys were moving over. Did he pass quite quite early as when you moved over? Or?
1: Yeah. He died uh, probably about six months later. So he came over to get some treatment, mm. um, and then when the doctors told him he was going. He didn't have long. Uh, he had our visas all organised, and Mum took care of him in the house, wow. so our family home, until he passed away. So he died. He died in our in our home. But um, yeah, that that's probably where I took to sports and finding those male role models in my life, and worked out really well. That I was connected to a lot of good families, and in particular, you know, good coaches.
0: Yeah. Have you got siblings, David?
1: Yeah, I had a older sister that passed away. Um, Sorry to hear that, mate. And uh, it's okay. Uh, in 2009, So she was pretty much my best friend. So um, that was another big loss in my life, and I got a younger brother and an older sister that still lives in Papua New Guinea. Okay, well,
0: that's uh, quite the you know you would have went through quite a, a bit of adversity, you know, at such a young age just to to lose your father, like. Is it one of those things that, you know, I haven't lost my father? Is it something that you, you think about him just constantly, daily?
1: Um, I pretty much think about him every week. Um, I didn't have that close relationship. Um, like I said, he was a very quiet man. He was he was always working. Yeah. After teaching, he got into logging. So he was always, always away at work. And um, so after work, you know, they go to the pub with their mates. So uh, I was kind of following him around, but, didn't know much about him because there was no sort of conversation, but I knew he loved this. And I really looked up to him because he was this big, huge giant of a man yeah. and um, didn't say much, but he was pretty scary.
0: Have has um, any of your family or maybe some of his friends been able to share some stories over the years about who your father was?
1: Uh, bits and pieces. And everything is just 100% positive about what kind of man he was. Um, um, you know, mum still... I think it's still affects her in, a, in some way that he's not here. So she doesn't even, she doesn't speak about him too much until I ask her a question about him. Yeah. So, um, the information that I've, I have gotten is from just various people and, and family. Um, yeah. So I do think about him and, um, you know, when the pinnacle moments in your life, when you sign, sign your contract, you know, when a grand final and, you know, then you have kids. You know, you you think, well, he would have been proud of me in that way. Mm. So, yeah,
0: most definitely, mate. So, mate, you mentioned, you know, finding rugby league at twelve years old. What age were you when you started, kind of making an impact and started getting noticed by maybe some scouts or some some rep teams?
1: Um, I started playing rep football from pretty much day one. So the Cairns side. Um, there was uh, back then. There was some really quality um, kids running around. Um, So making rep footy. But uh, underrating grand final was my first um, contact with um, Wally Lewis. Um, He was there to present the uh, trophies and the man of the match. So um, he was there and he watched the game. He presented the grand final trophy to my team and then a a man of the match and he asked me to do a speech and I said no. <laughs> I said, not, nah, you gotta do it. So he forced me to do a speech and had a few words, but how how long then, was
0: the speech, Dave? Was that only just a short one?
1: Oh, thank you. I think it was. Just a, <laughs> just w- thank w- you. Were you
0: very shy when you were growing up?
1: Oh, unbelievably shy. I could remember um people coming around to to the house and I'd just run to the room and stay there till they left. So that's that's how shy it was. Wow. Yeah, it was ridiculous.
0: And did you know the back, significance of Wally Lewis?
1: Um I watched a bit of rugby league and State of Origin so my my first taste of rugby league was watching it on TV. Yep. And I I just used to wonder these these guys are so tough. You know, the way they play the game and then State of Origin it was even even tougher than, you know, club footy. Oh, and yeah. You know, followed them a little bit but not too much a particular player but I used to just um Watch, watch teams and follow teams.
0: Okay, so mate, after that 18s grand final, because you played some, you actually made what the 19s Queensland team, did you?
1: Yeah, um, 19s uh, Queensland team. That was with Sid Dominic. Um, so we won the championships that that, that year. Yep. We not oh, lost, yeah, but uh, I played in Central Queensland under Chris Close, and I made this uh, Indigenous Sailor a few other players
0: oh Wendell was in there as well
1: yeah yeah in the team that I played in so
0: what was he like was he as charismatic as he is now
1: yeah pretty much
0: life of the party yeah
1: yeah he was a he was a skinny bloke back then when I was looking at the photo he wasn't as big as he is now
0: mate Sid Domic was a good player I remember watching him plenty of footy at at Penrith especially
1: Um, because he, he made the um, 17s, 19s, and then made the A-grade rep side yeah. when I was there as well. Just talent and very fast.
0: Yeah. Who did you play? Was any in the New South Wales team who was playing for them?
1: Um, I can't remember, mate. Um, Yeah, like uh, while I'm telling you, while I'm doing this interview, there, there's a few blocks where memory wise, you know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if was head knocks or, you know, part of growing up.
0: Bit of both, but, I think. Um, I think for yeah.
1: all of us, I think. Um, because when I went to Canberra, I ended up playing for New South Wales and that, that was with Andrew Johns and a few other players um around that time that I I switched to the other the other side.
0: There you go. But how does a boy yeah. from how's the boy from Cairns end up switching to to Because that that is a long distance. They must have had a good talent scout up there.
1: Yeah, so when I went to Gladstone, um I nearly signed with Gold Coast. Um okay. because um Wally Lewis had um Chris Close was played for them back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So he was our captain coach and he contacted Wally Lewis to come and watch me play. Um he watched me play and I had the worst game of my life. I was just just the pressure. Was, was it was because young, you knew he was 18. coming to watch you play? Yeah. Yeah. Because I kind of did my research back then and knew he was back then. And okay. Um, I just cracked under pressure, but I think just from what Chris told him, they were going to sign us on a scholarship, um, end up doing that. But then when I made the Queensland 19s, Tim Sheens was there. Yep. So he was watching um, a few plays from Central Queensland, North Queensland, all around. I think he went to Fiji, um, picked up a few players there, but yep. uh, he scouted me back then. And I was supposed to go to Canberra in 92. They wanted me to sign because um, Bradley Clyde was injured, so um, I just got a bit afraid and I, I kind of said no. So I played out another year. Wow, you said uh, no
0: to Canberra. You said no to Tim Sheens.
1: Well, I think a bit of advice from um, Chris, because I think he was trying to get me to the Gold Coast. Okay. But um, yeah, it was a it was a funny time.
0: Mate, Tim Sheens was a master, butt when you think, especially back then when you have to do a lot of the kind of scouting yourself, when you think he found yourself, Bruce Mimando, he found Ruben in yeah. in in New Zealand, as well as John Lomax, yeah. Quinn and Pongia. Like yeah. some of the Pacific Island boys that he spotted were just stellar players. Like it's amazing his eye for talent.
1: Yeah. Um, I always tell stories. Well, I do coaching courses now uh, up in PNG and I always tell the coaches that um, – him in particular had a, an eye for raw talent. Mm. Um, you bring these players with raw talent, just shape them into unbelievable players, and that was pretty much Canberra in those days when he was coaching.
0: What, what do you remember of your for your first contract? What did they offer you, and for how long?
1: Um, I went down. I think it was five thousand, <laughs> something like that. 3, That's not too 000, bad, I, I guess. Back
0: in '93, would that be the equivalent of like maybe forty grand. Oh.
1: That was really good. Just the opportunity line, and you know, they got you a part time job. Yeah. Um, to work. End up, uh, so I made a full time squad and pretty much training twice a day and yeah, didn't have time for work
2: back then. Yeah. Did you have a job before then?
1: Um, no, I went to Gladstone. My sister was living there with her husband and. I went there to look for an apprenticeship. Yep, and I got scouted. I was talked to, but um, that wasn't in my mind. It was just I need to get some a job or a trade or something. And then Chris Close popped up, and I played for Brothers with him. And yeah, that opportunity came up, and didn't just did odd jobs here and there. And yeah, went professionally.
0: Okay, so mate, did they move you when they moved you down to Canberra? Did they kind of give you accommodation and all that sort of stuff? Did they put you in like a house with the players and that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, they call it the Taj. The Taj. It was was inside inside Seaford Oval, so it was like a boarding house for the younger players. Had nine rooms um,
0: inside the Oval what? in the grandstand.
1: Inside inside Seaford Oval near the fence. Okay, when you when you come driving through the fence, there was a a white house there. They call it the Taj Mahal. Okay, Uh, Taj for short. But had nine rooms: a lounge room in the middle, the kitchen and bathroom on one side. So uh, Bruce Mamando was there, Mark Mom, Ellie's Paya, and no. Noah Nandruka was there for a little bit.
0: Oh, Noah as well. We forgot to mention him. was one of the the great finds.
1: Yeah. So players would come in um, and play footy if they, you know, you, if you sign a good deal and they get you accommodation with it, you move out. But Yep, myself, Bruce, and a few others. I think we are there for about two years. Okay, because free rent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> did you and Bruce? Your...
0: Did you and Bruce just hit it off straight away?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were there in each other's faces, and we we had to, you know, kind of make up things while in there, and then we'd go to train and be around each other. Winter, we did not leave that house unless we were the because you know. Us North Queensland or Central Queensland, we just wasn't – we weren't used to the cold. So. Oh, it would
0: have been minus 10 degrees or something, mate.
1: Uh, we came up with some silly games in there. We were throwing darts at walls and through, through little gaps and playing rugby league on our knees and putting holes in the walls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Could any of the boys cook?
1: Yeah. Uh, Bruce was a pretty good cook. Yeah. Um, he had a pretty good diet and – Love these foods, but um, there was no lady that used to look after us and come and cook once in a while. But um, yeah, we, we had to learn how to cook. If not, we would just go down to Queenbian, and there was this place here where they had big plates of food for really cheap, and that was kind of our spot when we didn't want to didn't want to cook.
0: <laughs> nice one, well mate. In terms of like you know the, your coaching credentials now, like you've literally did kind of like a university degree. So like your first coach in 21s was Craig Bellamy like what was it like yeah. to be coached by Craig Bellamy especially a young one I'm sure that he was trying to find his own feet then too but what was it like
1: oh even back then I when I think back he was a really good coach and he was well respected by the players um, they wanted to play for him um, uh, but just yeah you didn't want to fuck sorry you didn't want to stuff up when you were, that's right um, you can
0: swear on this it's fine
1: <laughs> You didn't want to stuff up when you're playing under him because yeah, he'd, he'd give you a bit of a spray. Um, oh, so you yeah. had a
0: spray back then.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he's got yeah. a good
0: one now. So even some of the ones last year he had with Cameron Munster and he had a couple others. Billy Walters was telling me a few of the, the, the sprays that he's been dishing out. Like, sounds pretty fierce, even in his older age.
1: Yeah, he's, he was pretty intense. Like he'd train with the boys and he'd just do road runs. Um, kept himself fit and. Um, yeah, I think he was one of the reasons why I made A-grade so fast. I played A-grade that first year, the mm. last three games. So, um, playing under him was it was really good. Was it –
0: what was it? Is it? Was it an intensity thing? Did he do extra kind of video work? What was it about him that kind of got you to that next level?
1: I remember, you know, just if you walk over that white line and you're training, you just put in – you know, there's no stuffing there's no around you put in everything you can and um, no shortcuts, no. everything to do with training. Isn't that, probably, um, Tim had a really good coaching staff around that time. Um, they, were all, they all complement each other. They all work well together. And that's the reason why won that grand final in 94 and, and you know, had the successful years winning the yeah. finals. David,
0: what's it like when you when you're still a young bloke and you walk into training and you see Laurie Daly, you see Mel Meninga, you see Ricky Stewart, you see Bradley Clyde, you see Steve Walters, you see Brett Mullins, Gary Belcher, mate, the list goes on. Like Canberra had an absolutely star-studded Australian lineup, but for a young yeah. bloke, like that must be easy to be intimidated by that. What was your approach when you first like who was the first one to maybe say something to you? Like, what was your first kind of interaction with these these superstars?
1: Um, you just listened. You didn't say much. Or I didn't say much. I just listened to them and, and followed what they said because they were experienced. Um, mm. And like I said, when I was growing up, I didn't really fo- follow particular players, especially, you know, New South Wales players. But uh, when I went there, you start to really see and hear about what these players have achieved in their lives and do they really work. So, mm. Um. For us young kids, it was just um, working really hard and there was a lot of run- young uh, players that were really competitive and if you, if you did that, you'd make it. So, um, you know, in a way, I was very lucky to be quiet and, and listen to everyone that spoke to me and got advice and I went a long way.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, for, all those,
1: for
0: all those superstars I did mention, how was kind of – was training brutal? Because the prop forwards when, you know, I mentioned before, there was Lomax Pongia yourself – Bruce Mando, there was Luke Devico. I wrote a couple of other guys: Mark Corvo, Darren Fritz. Like, I think it's an underrated sort of because of the superstars. Sometimes all you guys in that front row that did the hard yards gets it kind of doesn't get the recollection probably that it deserves. But how was training, especially with the competitiveness with those guys that I just did mention?
1: I was pretty full on. You didn't you didn't hold back. Um, I remember the '94 year where. Um, like your Ponge Lomax, wiki, and a few others we do um, extra training at the end of the session, so one on one tackle, so working on that footwork and and we just get into it. There was no holding back because how you train is how you play, and that's um, the way I coach now yeah um, I don't like players going in soft and um, not using proper technique, so it was very competitive. Those particular players didn't want to give up their spots because they could see that these younger generation were coming through and we were pretty talented. We had this raw talent and um, they were going to make it hard for us to, to get their spots.
3: So, I can imagine. Um, yeah,
1: I, yeah I, I just remember the training sessions were very competitive and, and just... Um,
0: were they nearly harder tough. than the games?
1: Yeah, in stages there were, you know, we, you know, in a couple of incidents we got told to hold back a little bit there was always a bump and bruise, or maybe an injury once in a while. Um, and it- just enjoyable, something different every every week. There was always something different, and you you always look forward to coming to the training.
0: Yeah, I would have loved to watch it's been a fly on the wall at some of these training sessions. <laughs> That's for sure, Dave. When you were working your way through, you know, you know back then you could sit on the bench, you know, you could play 21s, you could play reserve grade, and then also ride the bench for first grade for a long time. You know, I know you made your debut off the bench against Penrith, but were you close? Yeah. Were you close before that to actually nearly getting on the field before that, man?
1: Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty close. Um, and I think it was the, um, the worry of, is he ready? Mm. Um, and towards the end of the season, I started to really click and, and, get all those little things right in my game because, you know, I was a good a ball runner and defensively I had to work really hard on my footwork and making those tackles. And it wasn't about just going in as hard as you can. It was actually, you know, a lot of work on, especially in defense. Mm. Um, like I said, uh, they wanted me to sign me the year before because uh, maybe they saw something within me to get me ready for to play grade back then but um, yeah it was a bit of a transition but I I think it was the right time you know Mm. because I didn't look back after that
0: yeah now you know the week after you actually run on against Balmain it would have been pretty cool like back in the day they used to have the big league magazine and it must have been an impressive achievement that you could show your family and friends that you know you have made back then the New South Wales rugby league competition which was the biggest rugby league competition in the world
1: yeah yeah um You know, my sister is not here now. She was was the proudest because um, she always followed my career. And um, even even as a young kid, they'd take me to footy and she'd be really supportive. And uh, it was a really proud moment for the family. Um, uh, Yeah, well, I I, I get more proud and really look back at my career now Mm -hmm. that I sit back. Back then, you're just a young kid and um, and didn't really – I didn't really notice it back then. Yeah.
0: How did Sheenzy break the news to you that you're going to be running on?
1: Um, well, he, you, you know, you, I can't remember the conversation, but I think he pulled me aside and just gave me the news. And, you know, you started getting butterflies and getting sick in the stomach. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, you are playing with these players and they got really high expectations, especially for a forward back then, you had to really do your job and make the meters because you you have these halves, you know, world-class halves playing behind you and if you don't make your meters or do something silly, they're going to rip into you. Yeah. and, and um, mate, They was, do that in training as well.
0: I can imagine and like someone like Ricky Stewart as well, because like, that 93 season is probably that season that you guys probably should have won the competition but Ricky got injured yeah. those last couple of yeah. games and it just literally, how do you lose the best halfback in the world? It's, it's nearly impossible to replace but from from what you remember of that that 93 the back end how much of a deflation was it when Ricky got injured
1: it was pretty big um, we we knew that we were losing one of you know the key player you know because he was he was our director and um always talking always guiding and, and just a really good player um, and that that was a big factor mm. why why we didn't win it that year but yeah. yeah how
0: big was the motive? like cuz obviously off season, there must have been plenty of talk about making up for that season, and obviously you do do it because '94 you win the competition, but you still got to actually turn up the next season. How much? What was that kind of off season from the '93 to '94 like?
1: I think uh, just just the players that were there were just really hungry to win the grand final. We knew we missed out because of that, that factor, and you know when rookie came back, um, everyone pretty much worked hard from from day one. Um we knew we had the team to win it, and that, that was a year. Um So, like I said, every session, you know, I could remember coming from North Queensland, and I, I threw up on many occasions and fainted. And just the training was so intense.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Who yeah. was who was faster out of Noah Ndruku and Brett Mullins? Oh,
1: you wouldn't know. Even, even Kenny Nagus. Um,
0: oh, Kenny Nagus, sorry. I, I don't, I don't in really... Too.
1: You know, Brett was really fast off off the mark. Um, Kenny, I don't think he really showed how fast he was. He just did enough to get away from the player.
0: But d- he looked Noah graceful, there. but didn't he?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Noah could um, sprint in one direction, step, and then step again in the same speed. I've never seen him <laughs> someone do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was a lot of talent back then. Unbelievable talent.
0: Oh no doubt! You nearly had two teams full of talent.
1: Yeah, yeah, but um, I, I, you know, when I look back, I came in at the right time. Mm. Um, uh, a lot of those players were, you know, at their best, and some of the fours were going out. You know, it was the right time for for a few of us young blokes coming into that, that team.
0: Yeah, what was the kind of back in Papua New Guinea with you and Bruce doing so well? in a star-studded Canberra team. Like, what was your reaction from back home?
1: Uh, a lot of excitement because, you know, that just meant um, they could strengthen the Kummel side. You mm-hmm. know, they brought us in in 95. Yep. It was Marcus By as well. Adrian Lamb had been there for a couple of years. And, you know, we had a pretty strong Kummel side there. So the excitement of knowing that these players were playing in the – um you know, Australian competition, and there was a few of us doing that. There was a bit of the influx of public New playing in the NRL. So yeah, we we'll have Australian a ch- rugby league back then.
0: Yeah, we we'll have a chat about that World Cup '95. Does I've got a few interesting questions for that one. But before we get to that, talk talk to me about a young bloke making his grand final debut in '94 because the semi final series was quite stellar as well. Because you guys lost to Canterbury in the major semi final, I think it was what '1918 by memory, and then obviously you have to yeah. play them again in the grand final and obviously Canterbury are just as good as Canberra that year as well. So talk, talk to me a little bit about how you prepared for your first grand final.
1: Yeah. Um, I've never seen something like a, a whole city get behind their team, like, you know, green sausages, green milk, you know, back then, you know, I'm sure it's done with every grand final, but that was a really big eye opener. You walk down the street, everyone's um, giving you good luck, and um, it, 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 you did all the preparation throughout the year and you're going in the semi-finals, but it was just lapping it in, and you know, giving it back to the fans and talking to them, and yeah. And I was nervous all week. Yeah, pretty pretty nervous.
2: Back, back
0: then, but in 93, 94, when they had the Tina Turner going on, John, uh, what's his name? Oh, just all the – I, I love the early 90s because all that Tina Turner stuff, just, I don't know, something about – because there was very Sydney competition as well still at the time, like, everyone still had – even for us living in Sydney, like, you went for your different areas and it was very patriotic. Like, how many – do you remember, like, was there, like, buses and buses and buses that just came down with you guys?
1: Yeah, there was a fair few buses, uh, plane rides as well. Um, we came down on a whole plane, which pretty much chartered for all the the team and the families. Yeah, uh, the wives and kids. And Yeah, I remember there's a, a lot of buses coming coming down from Canberra. So when you turned up to the game, you, you could you know they were there because of all the colours. Yeah. Then you had your Sydney-based Canberra fans, which you you know pretty much met throughout the whole year. They were always there supporting you and all the familiar faces of, um, who was at, you know,
0: Bruce Stadium back then. Yeah. That's what I used to really yeah. love because that grand final would have been maybe 11 years old or something. But back in the 90s, they used to put those little tags on your – like when you made the grand final, you got that extra yeah. tag with the Winfield Cup on it. Yeah. And that just changed yeah. the jersey altogether. And I, I was obsessed with just seeing that on grand final day when I was a young kid.
1: But yeah, that was pretty special, yeah.
0: What, what have you done with your jersey?
1: Um, I gave my jersey to my uh, sister that okay. passed away, yep. and um, along the when I had kids, she had given it back. But when she passed away, I actually put it in her coffin. Wow. Um, because that's something that I was really appreciative of, that um, she supported me all throughout that, that um, you know, all through my younger days and playing rugby league, and I kind of um, yeah, that's what I did.
0: That's the biggest thing, isn't it, Dave? I've been obviously speaking to a lot of players for a long time now, but that support system, like what she provided for you, if she didn't do that, there's probably more than a 50-50 chance, maybe a 90% of chance, I reckon, that you don't make it to the NRL.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I can't forget mum as well. Uh, mum was working two, three jobs when dad died. So we came into this this big city compared to, to bow and, And my sister was old enough where she she was doing the same thing, taking taking care of us. And um, if there wasn't the strong women in my life, uh, I wouldn't have played in the NRL, you know, in that competition. But, you know, my sister was always there, you know, taking me to the Games. And she was there when I signed for Canberra um, in in Gladstone. So it's something that I really wanted to do for her, yeah.
0: Is it, you know we talk about great women in our lives and I'm the same with my mum and my sister as well. But, you know, all these years now, you know, you're doing so much work with the women's game. Like it, it kind of is that roundabout thing that influences from women and now kind of giving back. And it's amazing to see the development in the women's game and it's just going to go from strength to strength, especially with people like yourself involved in it.
1: Yeah. Well watching the women play is like the nineties, eighties. They're just, they're just raw.
0: And (laughs) we said that at the nines actually. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I love I love watching them play, um, and it's really enjoyable coaching them as well because they just they just uh, so they just lap everything in and they they're so respectful and uh, quick learners and you know they've they've supported this for however long rugby league's been around and now it's their turn and they're doing really well and it's it's amazing how fast the women's game's growing. Yeah, for and sure. So much talent. Yeah.
0: Definitely now just, just with that 94 grand final like is it, a, is it a blur like does it go that fast that you, you don't get that many memories from the actual game
1: yeah, it goes really quick um, you know the, the, travel, the bus the bus trip to the ground is probably the longest one because that's when you're worried and you're looking around and what's going to happen, but the game itself goes quick, yeah, and as you can remember, I got knocked out so. For me, it went really quick. It was like ten minutes, and when I ran on and um, got a high shot from Smith, and yeah, got carted off.
0: Where did so, you watch yeah. the second half from? Were you able to come back to the sideline?
1: Yeah, I came back to the sideline. I was out for a little while in the dressing sheds, and then came out and yeah, enjoyed enjoyed watching the the team play. And geez, um, he must have got you with a
0: done. shot to knock you out.
1: Well. It was a pass. I won't say you passed me the ball, but it was a nice, you know, high pass, a winger, and um, I caught it, and then, yeah, it got me around the neck, yeah. around the
0: head. Yeah. Were you knocked down much in, in your career?
1: Um, yeah, I had some really bad knocks um, throughout my career. I had a head clash with David Ball, and then um there's one, I got a kickoff, and then I went to sidestep and fell to the ground and hit someone in the knees. So I've been probably three or four occasions I've okay. been out.
0: Have you yeah, done so. any, you know, they're doing a lot of research now and a lot of people are like donating their brains and all that sort of stuff. Have you done much kind of work with any of the doctors or anything?
1: No, I haven't at all. Yeah, um, Does it concern you? It does work when I say that I, yeah memory-wise, I do have um, – Throughout my life, I've had these blocks where I can't remember, mm. and even even to this day, just names and uh, certain things. Um, so I should get a checkup, could not I?
0: Yeah, just just to <laughs> your own peace of mind, I guess. But I think that's the scary yeah. thing. From what I've just a couple of my mates that played also in the NRL, I think that was the biggest thing: is taking that first step because they were afraid yeah. that the results are going to tell them something. Yeah, that was their kind of fear from it. But then once they did it. I realized it was for the best interest of everyone. And it did come up clear at that stage. So I guess yeah. that's the biggest thing is just taking that first step.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a bit of a reminder that I've got to do it. So, yeah,
0: I'll, I'll send you some texts every week, mate, to make sure you get it done. Yeah. <laughs> so, mate, how does a young bloke celebrate winning a
2: grand final? Oh, um,
1: well, we drank for two days straight. Two, two, two and a bit days. Yeah, you wouldn't have been um, buying
0: a beer for a good year, would you?
1: No. Like we, went, we went back to Queenby and the Lee and it was, you know, all the families and we started drinking. I think the last two two or three people standing was myself, Reuben and um, Kenny Nagers.
0: Oh, the dream team. Across,
1: across, across the road, yeah. We, we were the last one standing. And um, it, it was just a really good time. Um, you know, enjoying each other's company because we worked so hard yeah. throughout that the whole year. And um, yeah, after that, when we got back '95, we still had the same team, and I believe if a few things were right. we could have won again. Mm. Yeah, it was it was good.
0: Now, you know, we we briefly touched on it. You know, you making your debut for Papua New Guinea, and that was that was at the World Cup. And from memory I think I've got it written down somewhere. I think it was against Samoa, was it? No, Tonga. Tonga you played against. Tonga. You also played yeah. against New Zealand. But for you know, you mentioned some of the, the great players before, you know, you mentioned Adrian Lamb, Marcus By. There was also I think Stanley Jean and Elias Peo that you mentioned before as well. So you got a, a nice yeah. little mix of the boys playing in either the super league over in England or a lot of the boys playing in the New South Wales rugby league. So it would have been cool to see, you know, to represent your heritage and then bring all the boys together as well.
1: Yeah. Um because when I when I was playing and growing up in Australia, I had this goal to play for Australia. Um, you know, arriving when I was eight and I knew Dad, you know, played rugby union. He I think he made the New South Wales side and got chosen to play in Australia at rugby union. It was kind of a goal of mine. Okay. Um so when I came to selection I, I had to sit down with Tim Sheens and um I had a chance of playing State of Origin as well, Queensland, and hopefully making the Australian side. But I um, had a chat with him and I said, you know, just there's an opportunity there and never looked back after that. It was one of the proudest moments of my life playing, playing for my country and playing with players. Um, you don't really know about, but just, just the, just great players, you know, mm. don't have the coaching that we do in Australia, but, um, just, just raw talent and just tough. What's it like when
0: you're hearing that national anthem for the first time?
1: Um, proud moment. You know, you get teary and you, you just think about your heritage and your upbringing and who you're playing for. Because when you're playing, especially in Papua New Guinea, um, the crowd are there. They just, it's a different sort of uh, atmosphere mm. to playing in Australia. They just love rugby league so much and they love their country. And yeah, it's, it's very different.
0: Yeah, would have been an unreal tournament. Now, David, take me to obviously the Super League ARL War. Like, where were you positioned
2: in all of that?
1: Um, I was starting to have a you know pretty successful um, you know year with rugby league, so I was one of those up and coming front rows. Mm. Um, You you heard stories, and it was just a funny time. And then I think it was before we played North Queensland. We were in Townsville. And they ushered us into, um, I think it was a casino. So they had the players go in one by one. All the all the Bradley guys and Laurie Daly's went in first.
3: Yeah.
1: Coming out with these um, checks, <laughs> these big checks, you know, for signing on the dotted line. And so, you know, us young players, we just follow suit. You know, that's our team. And um, we didn't really understand what was going on. Yeah. Or me in particular. Did you ever manage so us? Back then. Um, I had Wayne Beavis and, and a few other managers, but back then, um no, I didn't have a manager back then. Okay. Uh Paul Osborne was helped me out a little bit at mm-hmm. the uh, start of my career, but I had Wayne Beavis for a little while there, so
0: Well you so, couldn't you couldn't but, mess with Paul because he ended up being like a politician or something, didn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of took me under his wing um, after he finished, and I was saw, you know, checked if I was if I was okay, and yep. yeah, yeah, organised a game up here, a mayor's game, and um, he flew all the way from Japan, wherever he was, just to come and because the game was around, well, around mental health, and he just yep. he just came to be a part of it. It yep. was good, yeah, unexpected, but yeah, it was. a you know, if you're getting off all this money and your, your, your teammates, you know, especially the old models are all going in this direction, you won't you get to listen to anyone else.
0: Mm. That was the first time because Super you Mao coached you guys, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was coaching us back then, yeah.
0: Yeah, how did it feel kind of because obviously Tim Sheens was your mentor all the way through your first grade career and then obviously you have to get coached by probably someone that you looked up to as you are going up, as we all did. How was it like to lose your mentor and then get replaced by someone that you actually played
1: with? Um, uh, For me personally, it was, it was pretty tough because Tim was the, you know, the person that spotted me um, Mm -hmm. and he turned me into the player I was, Um, but that doesn't take away from, you know, Mel Meninga and he was well-respected and, me as a player, I always listened to my elders and respected them, and whatever they told me to do, I'd do. So yeah, there wasn't much of a difference there. But you know, Tim Sheen's a few of us really missed him as as a coach, um, and just a smart man as well. It was always approachable and just a wealth of knowledge as well.
0: Mm. Who do you reckon? Like now, now that you're coaching, who? Do- have you taken, like, a little bit of a trait from everyone? Like, how does it – when you're trying to make yourself a bit of an inroad in the coaching game, like, what's the best kind of strategy in that regard?
1: Um, I've taken a lot of my coaching out of uh, Tim Sheens and uh, Brian Smith. So, you know, when I'm when I'm spotting players or selecting, I really select on raw talent. Mm. Um, but at the same time, uh, Brian Smith was very technical, you know, always – Picking at the little things and um, and you know video analyzing and so a bit of a mixture between both and also my younger coach you know junior coach as well just the way you uh, treat your players the way you speak to them and, and nurture them and be like a father figure to them that that came up as well as
0: yeah.
1: how I coach so
0: okay how did you know you just mentioned Brian Smith and you you moved to Parramatta how did that all come about.
1: Um, I got told by um, Mel that uh, they made me an offer and, you know, it wasn't much money back then. Uh, mm. They were offloading some players and I didn't want to leave Canberra. I, I was pretty loyal as a person and as a player and yep. I was kind of um, forced, you know, forced out in that way where I couldn't take that amount of money. But uh, my manager back then had contacted Parramatta and also talking to other because I wanted to go back home, whether to North Queensland or Brisbane, up to Queensland and talking to a few clubs, and then Parramatta um, uh, showed me Lifeline and offered me one year. I'm um, very thankful for that. And end up going there and it kind of revived my career because I just came off injury, yep. having a bad knee injury and and just to play with. You know those young players with enthusiasm, and it was just a good time for me again.
0: Mm. You yeah, know, I was going to actually ma- ask you about because there was a chunk where you literally missed one season, and then half a season before that. How bad was that knee injury?
1: Um, it was pretty bad uh, when I when I did it. Um, my the whole knee went in one direction, forty five degree angle. It was just a uh, pretty pretty bad injury, and. Also, I had complications with scar tissue and and mm. just um, the healing of it. So, yeah, about a year and a half, and it it was never the same. To, you know, after that.
0: Mm. You know, Brian Smith. You know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of Parramatta players, and it is, I guess, with coaching, some players are going to love you, or some of them aren't going to get along with you. Kind of, what was yeah. your experience like with Brian Smith?
1: Um, very good. Um, it was pretty much straight down the line, and. You could you could uh, have a conversation with him and um, yeah, I found it really really good. He brought another level to my game with skill wise. Uh-huh. Uh, we did a lot, lot of skill work with Brian um, and I just really enjoyed myself at Parramatta for those yeah. two years over there as well. So,
0: do you think those older guys, you know, those because obviously with you growing up, you know, you lost your father very young in your life. Was that something you were seeking, like a, a an adult sort of mentor, maybe a role model in a in a, you know male variety, something a little bit different?
1: Pretty much, yeah. That that's pretty much been my whole life since uh, my father died. Mm. Um, even with my teachers uh, in, in in school, um, always trying to um, you know make them proud you know, doing, working a bit harder and listening to them. and yeah, that, That's pretty much my,
0: my whole rugby league career as well. Yeah. You must have learned plenty because, you know, you finished off at the Northern Eagles and that merger from the players that I've spoken to, they, they literally learned more in that year than a lot of their careers, especially when you're seeing turmoil off the field and then, you know, sometimes within a camp as well. Like how much did you learn from having experience being in a merged team that was not successful?
1: uh it was it was pretty tough um like Nathan long came from Parramatta. We had a few players, Nick Kosef just played his last year when I was there, and yeah you you're around the club and it's very very funny because when you used to play manly, everyone used to hate them and, yeah you know it was it was more than eagles were you know it was based in manly, and it was it was all the coaching all coaching stuff for manly and yeah, it was it was a funny time coming in and playing They're a good group, and mm. we tried we tried really uh, for each other. And um, but yeah, second year coaching, so uh, we really um, took to us older players just to help them out a little, bit and and um, uh, you know, try and try and win some games. But yeah, it was, it was a tough year.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, one of the toughest things, especially for a professional sportsman, is that decision to retire and then try to transition away from the game. How was that experience for you, David?
1: Uh, well, I didn't have a chance to retire um, pretty much. Uh, I went in for a, a bit of a cleanup mm. halfway through the year and um, caught a staph infection. So, uh, from that infection, it just pretty much ended my career. Um, so it was just a minor cleanup, and um, I probably thought I had another two years maybe left. Um, so that was a pretty depressing time. I, I went from playing a sport that I loved and um, it was pretty much my life to, yeah, pretty much nothing, not playing at all.
0: What did you do for work when you first retired?
1: Um, I did some odd jobs here and there. So with my knee, it, it was pretty bad, so I didn't do much for a while. My my wife at that time was working in Sydney, so we were there for a while. And mm. plus, I couldn't do much mentally because uh, I was that depressed, so I couldn't um, be around people at certain times. Yeah. So I had to slowly transition, trying to do uh, get something, do something with my future. And so I did. Odd jobs, uh, demolition. I, I was a cook for a little while, and ever since then, I've tried various different jobs. Um, but you know, coaching is what brings that passion back and that love.
0: How long was it till you actually found that? Because it it can take a long, long time to find your passion. Like, when did you realize that love for coaching?
1: Uh, it took me a while. It took me a while because um, I couldn't be around the game. I couldn't watch any rugby league for a while. I uh, couldn't talk to anyone. You know, if someone asked me a question about rugby league. I just tried to avoid it. Yeah. So um, when I came back to Cairns, I got a coaching role just to assist my uh, with my club here in Cairns. And that's when that passion started coming back and coaching players and giving the knowledge that I, I got from playing. Yeah. And it kind of sparked something within me.
0: Do you like coaching better than playing?
1: I do, actually. (laughs) I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I get a lot out of it. So I've coached from under six up to, as you know, the Kummels Mm. and the PNG Orchids. And uh, I just enjoy coaching at every level. And Yeah, I I really do.
0: But it is something because – I see it as like unselfish coaching because you know what it's like as a professional sportsman. You have to be very selfish to make it to the top of a top of a professional sport, but yeah, you do. With coaching, it's about you sharing your knowledge and you helping to mentor and make someone else not only a better player but also a better person. In my opinion,
1: yeah. Well, that's that's number one for me. Um, if I didn't have my mentors around me, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Um, I don't know how I would have uh, dealt. Uh, not having rugby league or sport in my life, and you know, the, the effects of le- le- uh, losing my father. So, uh, number one for me is the person, mm. you know, and then rugby league comes with they're going to be a good player if they're a good person, you know, having those traits.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, before we, we started the show, we're, we're talking about, you know, Quinn and Ponga and. Also talking a little bit about, you know, your own mental demons and what you've gone through personally yourself. So if you don't mind sharing with the audience, can we we have a little chat about the conversation you did have with Quinnen? And then also maybe just touch on a little bit of your own battle that you've you've experienced as well. Yeah, sure. All right. So starting obviously with that conversation, because obviously you guys were so tight, you know, it's not just about winning a comp, but when you bring a lot of foreign players in, And then especially in Canberra, from talking to players across the years, Canberra's different because no one actually comes from Canberra, which makes you guys tighter because you only have each other. So obviously that bond that you guys had with Quinnen being the first one to pass away from that group, like what was that experience like visiting him and then finding out things that you didn't know about him?
1: Um, It just brought up the fact that you don't know what someone's going through until until um, you have you have a sit down you have a good chat, you know, about life or whatever it is. So um, when when the guy was telling asking me to do a story about depression and what I went through, I was um I didn't really want to do it at that stage, but I, I um I thought by doing it you could be helping some young players coming through and, you know, conversations and talking to me wasn't a really big factor in my life. I kept everything in and that was, that's, you know, that's something that you shouldn't do. Mm. And, um, you know, Quinn to me was this, this warrior and, and the strength that us, me in particular, you know, whenever I did something good on the field or good hit, he'd come and pat me on the back and talk to me behind my ear. And to me, that gave me, you know, something just to keep going and, trying that a little bit harder because it, that's what it was when, when I was playing at Canberra. We played for each other and we played tough. And, um, yeah, he, he was a really big role model in my life, um, just just the, his presence, you know, on and off the field and just a, just a really good person. Mm. It,
0: it must have really shocked you because I saw obviously a few pictures of you guys visiting him and things like that and obviously he lost for a man giant. For him to lose all that weight and then obviously have to part, you know pass away in the end, it must have been. It would have probably hurt all you guys just watching him, especially a man of his his size and you know people, someone that you looked up to. You know, what was that experience like for you in those those last kind of moments?
1: Um, I, I saw him a few years before that, um, just uh, just a passing, and, and yeah, even then he he looked a little bit healthy, but not not the the this enforcer that he used to be when I was playing in Canberra. So um you know, I was up in PNG when he was he passed away and he was uh when he started getting sick, so mm. it was a big shock to me because you how can how can someone like that just um you know wilter away and, and die before everyone else? Yeah.
0: Did you did you mention before that before we started recording, that he also had some mental demons during his rugby league career?
1: Yeah, I had a bit of a chat with him and um, he, he shared a little bit about, you know, going through depression and, you know, because he he said, um, he told me that it's really good what you did, you know, sharing your story because it kind of made other people think about sharing what they were going through and not the whole them. So mm. in a way... Um, we all played with each other and we, we probably all had demons that we didn't share with each other yep. because it was kind of that way you got this tough rugby league players that, you know, sharing wasn't just a part of who, who you're supposed to be.
0: Mm. Did I see that but, uh, you did some, some work with the former player, Tony Priddle as well, a bit of life coaching? Is that?
1: Yeah, there was a bit of a stage there. It was I was suicidal and um, – it nearly t- taken my life, and you know I did a lot of praying and a lot of um just praying for someone to come in my life to help me up mm. help me out and you know he he his um, what he was doing just came up on uh, Facebook and I just did a bit of research and connected with him and he showed us some tools you know it's it's unconventional when you think about um you know, psychiatrist and psychologist, they want you to take tablets and, mm. you know, do it in a different way. But he, he really taught me how to go in deep within myself. And, and, um, that, that really helped me out. So, what, what kind of yeah, is totally kind really of a big factor in that change?
0: Yeah. What is it kind of like? How does it work? Is it a lot of meditation work? Is there a lot of journaling? Like, what, what has been beneficial?
1: Um, just, just the slowing down your mind and the meditation, of, uh, because overthinking when you're depressed, you're overthinking, you're worrying, and you know, keeping still and 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 just breathing and and taking a journal as well. I go, you know, everything to do with that I, I've never done uh, in the past, and uh, that that kind of helped more than meditation, yep. and going site within myself and just um, having those positive conversations was a really big factor as well.
0: Okay, awesome. Now, another positive thing that you are involved in and I want to talk to you about was obviously the Grass Skirts Project. So do I get this right? Your partner is the founder, correct? Yeah, she is. Awesome. How did it all kind of come together and what's her role within the the business?
1: Um, Well, she is the founder and – She's a director, uh, along with her best best mate. Okay. Um, they started Grassroots Project together, and she's also an athlete. Um,
0: she has she got a Papua um, New Guinean she, background as well.
1: She's, her mother's Papua New Guinean. Okay, yeah, nice. So, yeah, um, plays plays rugby league or played rugby league for the country. So, what was her name? Sorry, um, Tahina Booth. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, Yeah, at the moment, we're trying to run programs in the country. We just ran a a tournament up in PNG, so using rugby league as a tool and to provide health and wellness for the players that come in and the community Mm. um, that come to the event. But um, she's been a big inspiration in my my life as well. She's gone through similar similar things and um, she has a story that um, she tells everyone as well, so... We kind of bounce off each other and, and drive each other forward and the work we're doing at the moment is it's grassroots, it's community and it's mm. um, you know pretty much helping our people back in Papua New Guinea.
0: Mate, it's amazing the connection that Papua New Guinea people have with rugby league. Like it is the national sports there. Like when you go back there, do you still get just unindated with people just wanting to know stories, sign autographs, all sorts of stuff?
1: Yeah, it's it, mainly, it's just being around and, and yeah, it's asking questions. Um, you know, with our work in this grassroots, it's getting to places where most of the coaches or, you know, programs aren't run. Mm-hmm. So you get that respect as well. And, and the program that we're running, we've gained a lot of respect from, um, the people, you know, people up there. Um, because, you know, we're, we're, pretty much way back when you talk about game development. So um, that's, that's kind of the feel we're working in. and Yeah, is the love of the sport. And now with the women playing, it's just um, it's heightened it as well.
0: Yeah, especially like because the Hunters, they did quite well in the Queensland Cup as well. So that kind of all those little stepping stones, you know, I'm not sure if there's going to be an NRL team one day, but if it continues the stepping stones that you do, like it is a potential.
1: Certainly it is, yeah. Um, you know, the backing's there, the money's there. I mean, the government um, are behind it, but it's actually, for me being a development officer and um, doing the coaching courses and being a part of that game, we need to get that right first. Yep. You know, we need to get a strong junior system, and, and you know, with the coaching and everything like that to actually have an NRL team.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, David, you've been very good with your time today. Now we'll just wrap things up with my dinner party question now, mate. Now, David Wesley, you've got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? You know what? Because it's you, I'll scrap the family rule. You can invite family members because I know you're probably going to invite your dad.
1: Yeah, well, you're right.
0: (laughs) So I'll make one exception Um for you, mate.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I would invite my father and um, I um, had the confidence, you know, to ask him those questions that I couldn't um, – I was too scared to ask him when I was younger and I'm sure he would have shared a lot and I'd, I'd probably find out that he, he loved us, you know, dearly and mm. was doing the, doing everything he could for us.
0: So you got four more invites, David Wesley.
1: Four more. Um Muhammad Ali. Yep, he's one. I'm very fascinated with him. I just uh, think he's got this aura about him, and um, I just uh, think he's
0: a great person. Uh, Bruce Lee. He's my hero too. Actually, yeah, I got to interview Layla Ali actually, which was which was pretty awesome. Uh, Muhammad's daughter, the one that was boxing. Yeah, Yeah, So she was an incredible human being as well. So I'm the same, mate. I'm obsessed with Muhammad Ali. If you saw my my (laughs) house with the books, all the memorabilia. Like if I could have met one person in my whole life, it would have been Muhammad for sure. Yeah, but even the next uh, one you gave me, Bruce Lee. The Bruce Lee's the man as well.
1: Uh, I grew up in in Rubell and back then it was all the uh, you know the Chinese movies or karate movies. Because um, we had this cha- Chinese Rebel background, yeah, and um, they brought karate and uh, a few of these sports in there. So that's when I first uh, saw Bruce Lee. Nice, I loved him ever since. Was it
0: was it black and white?
1: Yes, yes it was. Yeah, and um, yeah, um, I've got two more. Two more. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I'd bring back. Um, I'd have uh, Quinn Pongy there. Yeah, um, nice. I would really love to, you know, this, you know, time of my life. Really sit down and and share with him and talk to him and, you know, and talk about our past and all the fun fun times we had and, yeah. Just, just have a really good chat with him.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good pick. And then your final one. This is going to be an interesting um, one because
3: this no, is a, this but, a hot yeah. ticket. Uh,
1: my sister, um, because um, uh, she she died from a stroke um, mm. um, in a in a car, so it was a it was a pretty bad accident. And um, before that, she had another stroke, and I didn't get to say the things I wanted to say to her, um, and say you know thank you and. And really appreciate what she did for us, you know. But they, my my sisters and you know, my mother, you know, they treated me like a king. And mm. you know, whenever I went to visit her, it was just, you know, did everything for you. So, just really appreciate what she did in my life and her her three kids as well.
0: No, she sounds what like an
1: important person. She was. Yeah.
0: She sounds like an amazing woman, mate. Before I let you leave, David, now I'm just going to give a few contact details for Grass Skirts yeah. out www.grassskirts.com. Project.org. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at Grass Skirts Project. Twitter a little bit different. It's Grass Skirts, P R O J. But David Wesley, thank you so much for sharing your story and talking with TK, mate. I've had a blast, man. It's it, like I said, mate, I love people with backstories like yourself because they're so fascinating and interesting. And I really appreciate all the open and honesty today, mate. It's been brilliant.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: All right, guys, so that's part one done for now. So we're going to kick off straight and rip straight into part two. So stay tuned for it now. All right, so we're going to do- we obviously dive a little bit deeper today. So from where we finished off last time with the podcast, we ran out a little bit of time. But, you know, I guess the biggest thing is, is personal story and I think helping others comes from people sharing their stories, whether yeah. that's good or bad. I think that's it's the same thing, and I think that's what we're here to kind of delve deeper into kind of your personal experiences because we both know that it's going to exp- people that are listening to this. It's definitely gonna it's going to help them, and like even for me, going through twelve weeks of of isolation so far, there's, there's been some days where I felt kind of at a low point. So yeah, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to to see how that kind of maybe you know resonated with you, and kind of where that maybe I can even take some advice from some of the things that you've been through. But uh, yeah. l- let's just touch the scene. Tell us a little bit about your your own personal experiences with both mental health and also obviously depression as well there, David.
1: Um, well, I didn't start talking about depression until um, in my late 30s when I ended my last re- relationship before my current relationship and I was going through some issues there and had to talk to someone because I was going through courts with my kids as well. And in a way, I thought at that time getting forced to talk to someone and get some sort of anger management. And and then when I started talking about it, I started getting this weight off my shoulders and understanding a bit more what I was going through. Um, but before that, um, you, know, you know, and talking to Tony Prittle as well, you know, sharing with him and, and him giving me some tools before that, um, I'd, I'd say that I was going through depression pretty much all through my life. So, does, um, does that stem just,
0: back to, to stuff with your father? Is that because obviously you lost him so early in life, and then
1: oh, mate, it happened before that? So, you know, when I, when I called you up again and saying I have a bit more to share, um, it happened before that, so um there was there was certain points where I lost a bit of memory in my life and there's one particular point where it kind of, that's the point that I remember and, and bits and pieces after that. Mm. And um, I had to talk to my mother uh, the other day because uh, ABC were interviewing me about um, domestic violence and yep. some incident just happened up there recently. And I remember, and I can share this because I asked her for permission that my then my mother took to an iron bar and broke my father's arm, um, and that's my last and only thought of my mother and my father in that sort of domestic violence incident. So I asked her, "Did anything happen before that?" And she said, "At least on the twenty occasions they they fought, and you know, physically, my father didn't lay a hand on my mother, but you know, my mum." vice versa, and um, so she told me I was to run under the house and lock my ears and just stay there um, or run away from the house completely, and I I could not remember that. It, it was just a mechanism where I blocked it all out, mm. and that, that that was my coping mechanism, so, yeah. It's interesting
0: um, that, you know, that happened when you were a young boy, but, you know, you I've I read some things about that, you know, people – you know, blocking it out, and but it's still staying. Kind of, what do they call that memory when when it stays with you? I can't remember Sub, the actual, subconscious. That's the one. That's the one. And it's obviously, it, it your behaviour moving forward has a lot to do with what happened when when you were a child. Like I, I did listen to that interview you passed on yesterday. Which was, it was quite a deep interview when you were explaining yourself some of your own behaviours when you were punching the walls and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's really interesting to, to fact. You know that kind of what you experienced as a child you know that's that's the indicator of where where all that kind of aggression was coming
1: from right yeah uh, with my three boys now i'm really aware now that um what they went through with uh, courts and you know uh going from house to house with my ex-wife and my ex-partner and i i more than ever i'm having i'm sitting down with them and trying to share my life and conversation and ask them how they're feeling and you know you start to get that real connection with your kids if you if you do that uh, you know when i when I first did it, they'd just look at me and say, "What the hell are you doing?" Mm. you know because they before that I couldn't talk to anyone at all you know? that that's so, tough
0: eh because sometimes even I find it like really hard to talk to people, not that like, I think I'm going to burden it sometimes I just don't even know if people would be interested in hearing what I have to say like did you get the same sort of like kind of feeling like as men. Like, is it kind of – is it a stigma that we don't talk?
1: Um, yeah, my upbringing was, especially in in the village, um, and then no one really sat me down to talk about my feelings. Even my father was a very quiet man. There was no talk of feelings. Mm. And, you know, all through my life and then playing footy, you just, you know, being a forward and a front, you, you, you tend to be this tough, you know, uh, enforcer and I can't remember us players sitting down and talking about feelings, you yeah. know. So you're not going to go out there looking for someone to talk about your feelings if that's the way it is. And it, it, it's not a good thing to do. You know, holding it in. Mm. Dave,
0: how how long did it take, even with, you know, expert help, how long did it actually take for you to still f- start feeling comfortable actually sharing your your feelings
1: with someone? Um... So I met my partner about a year and a bit ago and I listened to her story and her sharing her life experience. And when I heard that and got to spend a bit more time with her through working with um, her organization, it it kind of made me feel a lot more comfortable. It was her as a person and her willing to listen to me and, and the feeling that I got around her that I could really share what was deep inside mm. and i sure I shared with her something that i'd held in for 45 years of my life and um that took a big weight on my shoulders by sharing with her yeah what is what is that so, feel,
0: what does it feel like dave when that you know that weight of your shoulders like
1: oh, is, it's, is it it's like the best an in- feeling is, yeah 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 so and after that i i thought to myself well i need to share this with my son as well my son's and I set them all down, and I did that, and even more weight on my shoulder. And then, and then, same thing with my mother. You know, I shared with her um, as well. And you know, it's it's hard to explain. It's just just this huge, huge weight that you've held for your whole life, and it's off because you've you've got it out. Mm. You know? How come
0: you didn't like? Now looking back, was it something? Were you afraid of sharing it? Like, why didn't you talk talk about it at all?
1: Oh, it's something that I held because it's so. I, I when I spoke to you last, um I felt this comfortable feeling about you know that I can share it now with mm. you and on a on on social media or whatever platform you have because um, in a way, if I do this, then will it help someone else? Mm. You know, when I talked about depression a few years back and it came out on Rugby League Week, um, I had a few call-outs saying, thank you for sharing your story and, and you know, really helped me. So in a way, if I help one person, then I've, I've, um, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So, yep. Um. You know, when we first started this conversation today, I said there was a point where a time in my life where I couldn't remember. So I blocked it out. Even now, I can't remember. So that's probably around the age of six or seven. Um, But the memory that brought me to that is um, um, I got abused when I was younger. So um, the memory of that was uh, individual. I think he might have been a family member. I cannot remember his face. Um, Mm. Walked me into the bush, um, into an old abandoned house and um, um, started abusing me. So the point where, you know, he was on top of me and then it kind of blocks, you know, after that I can't remember again until, you know, maybe... I don't know, so until that point, you know, I start getting good memories in my life, but you know around that time, I can't remember his face i I can remember smell, I can remember the house, I can remember walking through the bush i can't you know led by him, but um
2: yeah and um, you know it's uh like I said, uh my my partner
1: got gave me the confidence to share with her and and um I'm glad I shared with her and my my kids and my mother, which uh in my culture, no one talks about it mm. it's It's swept under the table and it's hidden, and it just, it just keeps going, and it's still happening.
0: One of my mates, actually, I actually just had him on a podcast. His name's Gavin Badger. Yeah. He's, a, he's a referee, and he experienced the same thing that, that you did, and he, he only just came out publicly with it, and he's 48 years old. So, okay. you know, he he was in Bali last year, and he met he met a paddle boarder. Uh, Dam, Damien Ryder, I think his name is, is quite a famous paddle boarder, and over in bali they were doing you know they're raising funds for you know the support you know to raise awareness for what you've just described and that's yeah that was his trigger to being able to kind of tell the world about what's happened and obviously that's a huge thing for him moving forward is to get the awareness because there's such a high level of, of children getting abused out there and what yeah. you, you went through was something that no child should be able to go through but you know it is credit to yourself that you're strong enough to actually share your story because I know there's going to be people out there because even knowing Gavin for as long as I've known Gavin for like 20 years and I've never, I had no idea that that's what he faced going, going throughout his whole career and still being successful as he was. But yeah, I think it's something, it's a discussion even with everything that's happening in the world at the moment that I think the communication and having proper discussions about this sort of stuff is, is something that can help a lot, a lot of people, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, when I told my mum, uh, the automatic reaction was, uh, oh, it must have been a dream mm. um, because she didn't want to show her uh, shame for maybe letting that happen to me. And, and um, I asked if she went through the same thing and she said, I can't remember, you know. Maybe maybe something happened and she blocked it off. But you know, I got three boys, and I always wonder, ever since they were born, if someone ever did that to them. uh, I don't know what I'd do Mm. to that individual, and I wouldn't want that to happen to my sons or any short any child. And um, you know. Um, just with that interview I did the, the other day about domestic violence, you know, the guy that, um, hurt her partner, you know, what's his history? Why, why did he do that? You know, all these reactions come from somewhere. So I reacted in a lot of ways through my relationships and through life, and I'm trying to, you know, in a way, fix myself so I don't, um, have my kids follow that same same path, you know, try and talk to them and try and give them tools to to make sure they get through life without, you know, getting through things that I went through.
0: Mm. Dave, you know, I stumbled across that, the Rugby League Week article, just in, just before I got re-in-contact uh, re-in <laughs> with you. I don't know, sometimes things in life happen for a reason. Maybe I was meant to read that article so we could connect and become friends and share your story to a to a wider audience, but just reading that and you describing, you know, yourself on that beach, and you know, potentially going to end your life. What what stopped you from actually doing that that day?
1: Oh, I never, I never, I'm just praying and, and and asking for, because in a way, you wanna not have your kids go through this. So if I take myself away, um, my kids wouldn't have to go through the courts, wouldn't have to bounce house to house. Mm. But the other thing is I love my kids and I want to be around them and I want to watch them grow. And so I, I really prayed hard, you know, really, really prayed hard. And then, you know, I'd get a phone call out of the blue, you know, or something would stop me from having those thoughts. At the right time, so, you know. It's, it, so I really believe this. There's there's a force out there. There's a God. There's you know something that if you ask for help, you'll get it. Mm. And and you know people like yourselves are coming into my into my path because because I've asked for it. I wanted to share this story, and and get it out there to help people. And then you, you came along. You know, same as Tony Priddle. sitting under a tree and asking for someone to get me through a period of time and give me some tools and you know i connected with tony to give me those tools and help me so
0: yeah how long have you been spiritual for is it is it a lifelong thing or is it just a
2: recent thing
1: um when i was younger i used to feel things i used to hear things in the village yeah um Strange when you look back, you felt some sort of presence that just looked after you. <laughs> you know, when I at the time, you don't don't think about it, but when you look back, I said, you know, there was something there looking after after me. And then, um it was actually when I started um, talking to Tony, and you know, I used to lie there and we used to practice meditating and practice, you know, looking at the white light around you and yeah. And I started to realize, oh, miracles or things started happening really quick around me. And then the fasting came along and then that just heightened everything. You know? They're not miracles. They're you shaping your own world. You know, I, I can shape my own world now. I know that. So if if something happens really bad in my life, I look within straight away. What, what am I doing differently or what am I thinking or feeling? Yeah, so we, have, we hold a lot of power, right? Yeah. Do you journal much, yeah. Dave? Do I what? Sorry.
0: Do you journal much?
1: Journal? No, no. Um, I visualise. Yep. I, I, I think, and I can visualise, and I picture things. But journal, I've never. My partner keeps saying, "Write things down," mm. because you she she knows I have this power within me, and she's exactly the same. But no, I haven't, and I should.
0: Yeah, mate. I'd give you the same advice. Like that's sometimes when yeah. I feel my best. When I'm actually getting my ideas out of my head. And even sometimes they're not good at ideas. Just sometimes just getting things out of my head just really clears that space up in there. And then some of them yeah. are really good ideas. Like I'm surprised some of the stuff I come up with sometimes. But yeah. sometimes it's just the simple things like gratitude that I like writing down and just small individual goals. And same thing. is just like, you know, that that power of intention. What do they call that again? Yeah. The oh, what's the actual word for it again? Uh When you really want something and you write it down, what's that called? Is this ringing a bell? Uh, Jesus, why am I going blank when I need it? Oh, What's it called? Something of attraction, Uh, law of attraction.
2: Law. Yeah, 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 the
0: law of attraction. Why couldn't I remember that one? But, yeah, it's just the power of obviously, you know, writing something that you really, really want and that obviously being brought into the universe sort of thing. But that's where I kind of have found the power of journaling. So. Definitely, yeah. I'm on the bandwagon with your, with your partner. Start jotting she, some uh, stuff down, mate.
1: She, she, uh, she showed me once uh, something she wrote down, and 90, 95% of what she wrote down, she asked for me to come into her life. You know, a man with, with kids and wrote down two names, and David was one of them. You know, she keeps saying, write it down. Yep. and write it to the detail, you know, write it to the detail of what you want. And sometimes I struggle because I, I still have that self-doubt within me and mm. I, I'm working on myself every day. And um, I look back and I I got through a uh, long rugby career and, and through life still with that self-doubt and not really liking myself, not loving myself. And, you know, that that's uh, something I've been working on for a long time and still so, so you
0: doubted yourself even when you were at the highest level playing in grand finals, playing with the best players. You're probably one of the, if not the best product to come out of PNG and you still doubted yourself.
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> I, I used to go home and question and have negative thoughts. and. Uh, but um, the thing with sport and the rugby league in particular, when you go into that training paddock, it just changed your world. It's like a different world and I, I loved it, mm. you know, running on. But when you come off, and then when you're alone, especially when I was alone, I just, you know, think about things too much and think about the past too much. And the thoughts of getting, you know, abused and all those thoughts used to come back a lot, you know. And um, I didn't know how to get out of it. And back then, when I started playing, there was no. For me, that I didn't have that support base, or I didn't ask for it, you know, to talk to someone about those things that happened to me.
0: Dave, do you think we place too much emphasis on kind of sports? You know, you've been a, you've been away from from footy for for a little while now. Yeah. So that's probably giving you a perspective of being able to, you know, everything you're doing with grass skirts now and having three children and things like that. You know, sometimes yeah. even though this is about you know a lot of these podcasts are about achievement in sports. What I kind of like to showcase is achievement outside of sports and not putting so much emphasis on just sports like what's your kind of take now that you've kind of done
1: both i just I just look at the the individual the athlete the the athlete that goes home and is a mother or father or if they're going through problems because that, that's how sport is it's the athletes it's um the person, you know. So when I coach and when I when I uh, involved in the grassroots, you know, programs that we have, it's uh, really have try and get that connection with with the individual. And um, you know, when I started playing with Campbell, we had some really good people around, mm. and there was it was just a good environment, and I really enjoyed myself, but still had that uh, dark place inside me that I didn't want to talk to anyone about.
2: Um, yeah. Dave, when I, when I asked you about, you know, the, the beach and, you know, obviously
0: that being kind of the lowest part of that stage of your life, you know, I'm sure that motivation would have been at an all-time low. To, to be able to pick it, pick things up and achieve what you've done now, and get that motivation back. What was kind of the catalyst to
2: kind of getting that that motivation back?
1: Um,
2: the real motivation was um, my sons
1: uh, being there for them because I heard heard of some stories with you know fathers especially taking their own lives and then leaving their kids mm. and those thoughts came into my head as well so I didn't want my my kids to go through life and repeat what I did and not be there for them and I I lost my father because of lung cancer when I was 9 mm. and would have loved him to be there at my first NRL game and at the grand final and through the, my achievements through life and that that kind of was the was the catalyst to say that I need to be here on this planet because I, I got given this this gift, these three beautiful sons that I had to be here for, you know, and I had to be really strong and, and work, work on things. Mm. Dave, when you were playing, yeah.
0: like, you know, you just talk about, you know, your dad not being able to be at your games, your grand finals, you know how you, you talked out before about being able to sense things around you, did you ever s- seem to, did you look around and just think maybe his dad there or did you get any funny feelings when you, when you entered the field that possibly he was actually watching you?
1: Yeah. Those thoughts came, came into my head a lot. Um, I pulled upon that sometimes. And also my grandmother um, was a big part of my life and my grandfather um, in the village. Yep. And my, I, I remember me being with my grandmother all the time, just lying on her lap and um I, I did get those feelings a lot once again. I didn't really understand it and um, in a way i i in my mind would talk talk to my
2: father as well you
0: know. When did you start kind of you know that was it the work that you did with Tony that you kind of started trying to you know you started learning and thinking about what this actually your whole thing was that you were actually going through?
1: Yeah, because at the start I just went along with it. I kind of doubted it for a little bit. Um, But when, you know, if if you work hard enough on something and you'll still, you start to see that it does work. And it it was really tough because the the place where I was, um, I was living with my sons and, you know, wasn't in a really good place. And, Mm. um, and trying to work on yourself at the same time. But, you know, I'm here now and I'm, I'm feeling really strong and I'm moving forward. So that, that, that was a big turning point in itself. Yeah. worth with turning.
0: Absolutely. You know, some of the work that you, you guys obviously did together, you know, we, before we, we came on, on back on air, you know, we talked about a little few things like obviously training, nutrition, fasting, and things like that. Like, was yeah, was that all from from Tony that those kind of foundations started to take place?
1: Yeah, well it's it started from there and um I wanted to go further with uh so it was more the meditation or within looking within yourself. So the last point of working with Tony was actually visualizing talking to my father mm-hmm. and him actually saying, I love you and um, knowing that he worked really hard, he didn't spend too much time with me, and the reason why is he was working hard to give us, um, provide for us, and give us good education, and you know, and him bringing us over to Australia before he passed away was a true indication of what what a man he was, mm. and um, and with with the nutrition side of it, you know, I was really overweight, so once again I started praying, and and then things start popping. Um, up in front of you. So the fasting came up, and then the nutrition—what to put in your body. So it, it just came back to praying and just um, asking the question: What, how can I, how can I get better? Mm. How, how, and it is, yeah. people call it miracles, but it's just you asking for it, and it it pops up.
0: It's also taking action though. Like that's a big step taking the actual action to actually put it all into place as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's another component. So that well, I did a twenty-one day fast, um, and it took me about six months to get to that point. Wow. You know, I, I try and then it wouldn't work because I love food too much. <laughs> and, and I was up in PNG doing some coaching clinics for PNG RFL, and I woke up one morning, and then this is the day. You know, it felt like the day, and it just it started, and then I was working for two weeks, Well, pretty much the twenty-one days we were up there. We were doing the rounds around the country doing coaching courses and 21 days of water in the hot sun and not eating. You know,
0: how many days had you done previously before What was the record for you? Like before doing the 21 days, how long had you done a fast for?
1: I didn't make 24 hours before that. Really? Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't make 20. It was just that 21 days. (laughs) So yeah. Um, it was just the right time at that, you know, at that right time. And it, it kind of was a big cleanse. It, it, it's um, undescribable what, what the feeling was um, during and after that. It was just a big cleanse in my body. And, and I came out of that 21-day fast just mentally stronger. Mm. That I can do anything I, 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 you know, set my mind to.
0: Did you need that? You know, post You know, professional athletes... They lose that that competition was that something that because you lost that competition post being a professional rugby league player, was that fast something that kind of was very very similar to kind of having goals again in, in a kind of like a, a physical sort of in a physical sort of way
1: yeah I mean it, it, it tends to become a bit of a competition like can I do it yeah um, but there was a lot of different things. I was uh, I needed to lose the weight, and I looked up. You know, I I remember Sunday school Jesus being one of my heroes. You know, just him being a carpenter and walking on water and things like that. And he he, he did a forty day fast. You know. Yeah. And and I looked at that as well. You know, I want to be like Jesus. Um.
2: When did yeah.
1: the when
0: did the mental block started coming in? Like, what day was the biggest hurdle?
1: It's the first week. Um, just um, the hunger and your body and your you know your tongue gets all white and you yeah. started getting because I love coffee and when you do a bit of a clean out of your toxins and not drinking coffee and that sort of thing, you just your migraines are so intense. And um, after that week period, it 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 just I wasn't hungry at all.
0: Did time fly? I wasn't hungry. What about time? Did time fly?
1: Um, Not for that first week. (laughs) Uh, I didn't really enjoy that first week. But after that, um, after you don't get hungry, you just um, your your mind gets really clear, and and your your sleeps are very deep. Yeah, your dreams are very vivid. It's just um, unexplainable. Like people ask questions, What what is it like? You just, sometimes you can't explain it. What, what would you dream about? Um. So when I say vivid dreams, the funny thing is I, I'll dream about something and then I won't remember it in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that picture, um, it's
0: one of those things, the visualization while you're sleeping is huge. Is that what you're trying to say?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I do a bit of a pray before I go to sleep. Yep and um that particular prayer or whatever would come in my dream and then uh like i say mir- miracles happen really quick when you're when you're fasting or you uh things would happen you know not long after of what you ask for
2: yeah yeah um so you know
1: yeah, I never look back with the fasting. I am doing it, and it's part being a big part of my life now, and it's here to stay.
0: And yeah, yeah, I have to definitely get back in. You know, I was, I was trying a couple of years ago. I was doing every Sunday, and that was kind of my yep. my first bit into it. But yeah, I think you've just you just motivated me to start again, just to have another little well, crack. It, it does sound great. Yeah, it is, especially right now. I think it's something that we do need, and I think being able to explore within yourself, I think that's something that i would kind of like to untap moving forward. So I think it's definitely definitely a tool that that might be allowed might help me or aid me to be able to do that. So I think so. Just last thing before we, we kind of wrap up, you know the male ego, Dave? We're all kind of in that this world where, you know, we kind of touched on it before, not being able to speak. When we're when we're feeling low or we're feeling down and things like that. We don't want to burden other people but in terms of how do how do we get rid of kind of that male ego and kind of strip that back and be able to talk to our family or friends or even if it's something maybe on a professional level like how, how what's the first approach to actually letting that go and and actually giving it a chance of actually talking to people?
1: Um, I had to force myself to talk to people because I kept silent for many years. Um, because friends used to say, what's on your mind? Because they'd see it. they see it through you Saying say, mm. look really down. You know, you got something to say, and I'd just pretty much shut off and say, no, nothing's wrong. You know, i just feel a bit tired or whatever it is. But you need, really need to, uh, for me, it was important to find the right person, um, someone that would listen to you, not judge you. Yeah. And be, uh, you know, it's, these days it's very hard to find someone like that you know for me i feel really comfortable sharing what i need to share with you because i feel that energy yeah, is just finding the right person and actually just just letting it out you know however it comes out just let it out and just talk and that that's the first step for me okay you know now now that i've let a few things out i really want to get together with other men and have those conversations a bit more yeah because my my goal is um, to pass this on to our kids. So it's not hard to just share what's on their mind and having the feelings. So, yeah, Have and you, it, it's tough.
0: Yeah. Have you thought about maybe reaching out to a few people in your circle and maybe starting like a little group once, maybe if it's even once a week or something, maybe scheduling in maybe like a Wednesday night or a Thursday night when you're all available and having that hour where you might, you might talk 10 minutes footy and then you might talk 20 minutes about what it's like to be a father or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, or something, a recipes you've cooked that week, you know, just that hour for anyone to say anything they want and not be judged. Do you get what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's come across. And um, I'm really bad with getting, keeping on contact with the mates that I have. I I tend to, you know, tell them something and then shut off for a little while, but you know, they're really good mates um, and they want to, they want to talk to me and, you know, the, it's getting over that hurdle, and uh, I do want to do that, um, um, especially with what's um, happening recently in PNG and and getting together with some men and talking about domestic violence and mm. from different parts of you know life and sharing and their upbringing, and maybe that'll people can listen and really uh, take advice. And um, yeah, so that that that'll be. Something I really want to do. Yeah, I think you're great. Maybe we can, great maybe we can do that together. Yeah, mate. I think it's great. I think for for couple, to have a, a variety of, of yeah
0: to have a variety of people yeah. with different life experience and sharing your own experiences yeah. with each other. I think that's powerful, man. Like I think it's huge. Yeah. And having a safe environment where you can get advice and maybe just someone just to listen to. I think that's huge. Sometimes yeah. people don't have anyone to listen to them, and sometimes you just yeah. wanna you might want to just vent at something or just get some advice on something that you're struggling with. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I think that's something. I'll tell
1: you the truth. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, you know, we talk about this weight on my shoulders and, and sharing, you know, just this conversation alone has just um, given me so much energy and, and, and uh, you know, that sort of advice as well. mm. It's really good for me because I, I believe I do have a story to pass. Yes, yeah, so I really appreciate um, what you're doing and this, this conversation.
0: No, of course, Dave. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm glad that we came on for uh – we'll call this part two, but I think part two, even though part one was great because, you know, you've got a very inspirational story coming from PNG and everything that you went through from your childhood and, you know, playing in in literally one of the greatest teams of all time as well. It's what you achieved yeah. was was brilliant throughout your career. So I I I love part A, but kind of being able to share share your story with part B and just be able to you know get to know you even further. I thought I think part B might be even like for me more favorite than part A, mate. Like I've really enjoyed getting getting
3: together, <laughs> well,
0: you know.
1: Yeah, well it, it'll give I mean it kinda gives you a um you know gives you a story of, you know myself really.
2: Mm. Um,
1: I'm not the only one. You know, you shared that story of the referee and he got through life and to the top of his game and there's a lot more Men and women out there, they go through the same. Mm. But um, If we can pass on this knowledge to, like I said, young people in general, um, we, at, le- at least we can give them some tools and uh, make sure they don't hold it in, open up to each other.
0: Yeah, totally agree. And that, guys, was David Wesley. I hope you've all made it to the end. It's a couple of hours, so I really do appreciate your time and I really do. Hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did, bringing it to you. A little bit different between the part A's and part B, but highly recommend you get in touch and let David know if, if you listen to the podcast, and I'm, I'm sure that you enjoyed it. So let him know. It's that's what kind of why the guests come on this to share their stories and also be able to motivate and inspire people. So David's definitely someone that that does that. So definitely add him on social media and follow the course because he's doing some great things. He was brave enough, especially in Part B, to reveal a few things that not a lot of people could open up for. So thank you, Dave, for coming on the show. You know, you're a friend for life, so you're a legend, mate. So keep doing what you're doing in the community, mate. You're inspiring plenty of people. All right, guys, next up on the podcast, we've got another legend of the NRL and also a former coach in Michael Potter. Hopefully not... You know, not in the too distant future, we can see him coaching again because he's he's a good coach as well. People uh, underestimate how good a coach he actually was. So really looking forward to bringing you Michael Potter, and that will be on Friday. For the time being, I'll be bringing him out every five days. We've got plenty to bring out, so I thought I'd chuck in a few more than normal. So look out for the podcast with Mick on Friday. Guys, check out the Diamantina Podcast Network. It's the podcast network that I'm part of. Highly recommend the Batuta Advocate, Half cast Podcast, and Dill and Friends. You can connect me with me on social, Facebook, Twitter. I'm at TalkingWithTK. My Instagram is Tristan Nell, spelled K-N-E-L-L. Or send me an email if you need to get in touch, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Before I leave, my book, Talkings with Champion, Talking with Champions, that's out now. Retail is about $29.95. You can probably get it cheaper online at Dimmicks, Booktopia, or Angus and Robinson. It's 75 of my best interviews. So, some of the ones you haven't heard, probably with likes of Jonathan Thurston. Some of the boxing greats from around the world, Evander Holyfield, Larry Holmes, George Foreman, and Leila Ali. So that's the daughter of Muhammad Ali. So 75 of my best interviews, broken down into the best bits of stories, quotes. You're going to love it. So, you know, if you've got a birthday or Christmas also is coming up, I guess, as well. So... Get yourself a copy. It's called Talking With Champions. All right, guys, appreciate your time this week. Hope you're all staying safe. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.